Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Some people like to argue we can coexist with parasites. I just don't. I see the inflammation. I see the gut barrier function. We see the nutrient and malabsorption indicators. We see the symptoms, depression, anxiety, fatigue, weight gain, etc. And so I I don't believe that you should leave these things alone. If I find them on a test, I'm going to take care of them. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, so today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Evan Brand, a fellow podcaster. He's the podcast host of, it's actually called The Evan Brand Show, right, Evan? That's right. All right, cool. So he's a certified functional medicine practitioner and nutrition nutritional therapist. He's really passionate about healing chronic fatigue, obesity, and depression epidemics after solving, solving his own similar issues. His Evan Brand podcast has over 7 million downloads and counting, which is awesome. He's the author of Stress Solutions, REM Rehab, and the Everything Guide to Nootropics. He offers free 15-minute functional medicine consultations at his website, evanbrand.com. Welcome to the show, Evan. Krista, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about kind of the emotional side of of functional nutrition, functional medicine, all these back-end things, because it's just like we were talking a little bit about how I work on skin issues before. We sort of view things as an external problem or a different kind of problem. We don't always think about the nutritional manifestation or the like functional manifestation of emotional issues, right? Yeah, well, I just had a client last week, and she was talking about how she didn't know that detox actually meant emotional detox as well, which was kind of interesting. And so we were primarily just working on her chemical issues that we had found. But what we figured out was that she had a lot of emotional stuff in in the bucket, so to speak, too. And so once we got rid of all toxins from a heavy metal chemical perspective, she started having like childhood emotions pop out and all sorts of crazy things. So uh, I think the gut and emotions are highly linked. I believe we're holding emotion in our gut that you can literally detox from. Yeah. You know, 
I watched this uh, show with my husband, and that was on the episode this week on This Is Us. She talked about, um, you know, I really think I held all my emotions in to where it started as a stomach ache, and now it just aches deep down to my bones because I I held in all those emotions. And I think that's such a big piece. You know, I I will often say this. I don't have a podcast called The Less Stressed Life because I'm some kind of stress expert, but because we, we manifest stress in different ways. It's not just emotional. It shows up as different areas but you can't discount the emotional and psychological factors or it's really hard to get better yeah well this is part of the reason i have the ace questionnaire the adverse childhood experiences questionnaire on my intake form because i started talking with a friend of mine nikki gratrix she's a lady who talks a lot about trauma she'd be a good guest for your podcast too and uh she told me about how traumas can affect this and affect that and cortisol rhythm, et cetera. And I thought, well, crap, you know, I'm testing cortisol, I'm testing the gut. Why am I not testing, so to speak, for these issues? So I just started asking people, and it turns out, I would say the vast majority of people I work with, their ACE score, a maximum of 10, that's a very bad traumatic childhood. The average client's about a five. I mean, almost all of them have a handful of traumatic experiences, whether it was sexual abuse or uh, verbal abuse, physical abuse, being around parents, watching your parents get abused, watching your parents uh, being alcohol, you know, uh, dealing with alcoholism, uh, watching with parents with drug issues, could even be prescription drug issues. You know, it doesn't have to be hard drugs. Could be your mom's on pain pills all the time. You know, so. When I see that the score is above five, I start to get really curious, and then I'll probe these people a bit more and say, hey, you know, what's the most stressful period of your life? That's always a question I ask. Yeah. A lot of times it's now, the current time. That's why they're, you know, finally reaching out for help, but could have been something 20 years ago. Right. Absolutely. And sometimes you don't even realize, you know, this is where it gets a little challenging when we think we're going into work on medical or nutritional type issues. And then you kind of are being a little bit the counselor, not that that's our our focus, but trying to refer out to the right people. I was talking to a client who is a therapist the other day, and we were discussing um, fibromyalgia. And she was telling me about how in research, it's shown there's like a very, very high association with you know, fibromyalgia later in life and having childhood abuse at some point. And so that makes tons of sense because I definitely see with almost all autoimmunity a huge component of stress as a as a piece. So yeah, I found that really interesting. I think if we would dig into the research, um, it's very, very much linked. But this is where it's a challenge with clients sometimes because they come in that they're sometimes emotionally wrecked and that needs to be handled as well. Well, that's, I mean, that's where a practitioner has to know when to refer out just because we can get into some really deep stuff with people. And then at a certain point, you're like, well, holy crap, am I actually capable of having this conversation about this person wants to get a divorce? This person, you know, their husband just beat him last week. Like, this is crazy. So, yeah, I think a lot of us in this field, we want to help as many people as we possibly can. But at a certain point, you got to know when you got to get somebody else on board on the team. Absolutely. That is a huge piece. But from that perspective, if we think about it, sometimes these underlying nutritional or gut or whatever issues can be causing the emotional or it's starting to manifest as this emotional piece. For example, Evan, if you see kids, we were just talking about seeing kids. For example, what are some common signs and symptoms you see from kids that have an underlying pathogen or some component? Yeah, it's the behavior, number one. So it could be issues that the teacher is expressing to the parents. So it could be they can't sit still. They're fidgeting. 
know, it could be something related to minerals or adrenals, but a lot of times it's the gut. It could be signs on the fingernails of kids, the vertical ridging on the fingernails. If you see ridges on the nails, you see little white spots or other issues on the fingernails, that could be some underlying issue of malabsorption. It could be mood, so it could be irritability, could be anger, could be outburst, it could be depression. You know, I've had moms bring their five or ten year old kids to me and tell and, you know, I've had many moms say, Yeah, my, my nine year old says I want to die or I don't want to live anymore or you know, you've got suicidal kids that are not even teenagers yet. So it's quite scary, but the good news is you can figure out where this stuff is coming from and usually it's the gut. Yeah, and at least the parents are looking for help. I think that's a huge testament to how awesome some awesome parents out there that are really looking for help and not just ignoring it, right? That's the worst thing we can do is ignore the problem because they don't get better on their own. That's right. Well, and it's not a deficiency of pharmaceutical drugs either because the conventional approach, we always have to bring this up, is that it's going to be some type of a Ritalin. If it's an ADD or ADHD issue, it's potentially like an Adderall or a Vyvanse or some other type of methamphetamine derivative. So, you know, these are the these are the prescriptions that are getting written on a daily basis. And when it comes to children, we know antibiotics are very heavily used and overused. And the parents don't make the connection between the food sensitivity or the food allergy and, say, ear infection. And so then the kid goes and gets tubes in their ears, which has been shown not to be very effective after all. And the parent was never told about the link between the nutritional piece and what's going on with the kid. Also, other symptoms of kids, you know, it's usually the stuff with the bowels. So it could be diarrhea or constipation, or maybe the bowels alternate. Skin issues are huge. So eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis type issues, uh, thrush on the tongue, very common, very easy to see and spot. Also cradle cap, but cradle cap could happen. I, I just call it cradle cap, but it could happen for older children as well. So two, three, four, five, six, seven years old, you could see kids that have kind of a yellowy, flaky, scaly type skin under their hair, right against the scalp. And that's usually candida, mm -hmm. but we know candida is rare to see by itself. So if we find candida, usually it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's probably something else going on. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, the thing is, we start to get really complacent because we're like, oh, everyone's got cradle cap. Right. But really, every little thing is kind of a is just a picture. If we really were aware of listening to our body and, and seeing some of those different things you mentioned, I can't help but share something that was really ailing me this morning. Um, I have this 13 year old girl who was on ADHD medication before she came to me and we did really well with her skin her skin's looking really beautiful she's had this for her whole life and then now suddenly last week after her skin cleared everything looks good her hair started all falling out like really overwhelmed i mean you can't you can't push at all these um you know this is a big deal right like to lose your hair is a really big deal especially as a woman or a, a girl or girl that's a teenager so very distressing and so we looked at what happened three to four months ago because hair loss is going to be latent about three to four months after a big thing was there a surgery was there a medication change whatever and mom finally decided that the adhd medication was changed about three to four months ago um, which was before we started working together and so it's almost um, really dead on. And if you look up some of the research about it, there was some very similar cases where this happened. So this poor girl um, is, is losing this. And it just really, um, it breaks my heart because 
we're pretty medicated. You know, we kind of, we, we put our trust in people that, that, um, we believe are going to help our children and we're, no one's at fault here. Right. But it's just, it's like, gosh, there's so much more we could be doing right. than be giving medications that have side effects that are so detrimental to, to kind of like our overall emotional health. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I mean, I've had some people, unfortunately, where they'll, they'll say, Hey, between now and last time we talked, you know, my kid got an ear infection and his ear was hurting and it was on the weekend. So I knew you might not respond via email. So we went to the urgent care and they pumped them full of antibiotics. It's like, Oh crap. Cause now we know when we get that test back again, the retest, we're probably going to see there's more candida, potentially more bacteria going on. So it's, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not a good situation out there in the mainstream world. And you and I were kind of chatting off air about kids and it's like, look, I, you know, I wasn't trained necessarily as a pediatric functional medicine practitioner. I just had to evolve into that because I was seeing these pediatricians that call themselves integrative or uh, pediatric or they're, they call them uh, functional or holistic or whatever, but then they still prescribe antibiotics and it's like, well, what the heck? That's not functional. That's not natural. That's not holistic. So I've, I've just ca- had to, I guess, shine my light out there, be a beacon and say, look, there is another way. Yeah, there is a real lack of um, pediatric functional. Um, and it's just, there's, it's kind of like with anything, it's, it feels like this scary or uncharted territory or people don't want to touch it. And so um, there's just fewer practitioners in it. Good but- point. Good point. I think the fear is a huge aspect and people want to, they do the CYA policy, cover your ass. And so nobody wants to go and use an herb with a kid because people are going to say, well, herbs haven't been studied on kids. And, and then there's this gray area where you don't know, is something safe? Is okay? And the kids, how old? You know, and, and people, yeah, they get scared. So then they just do nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doing nothing isn't really an answer. So, <laughs> and we could go on about that. But let's talk about your history, um, Evan, because this is really how you got over to this end of the pond, it sounds like. Tell me about your background. Yeah. So, my story is more my own suffering, which is most of us that did this, you know, by necessity, not really by choice. I dealt with anxiety issues and depression issues as a teenager and developed gut issues that went into college and developed skin issues and went to the conventional doctors, got prescription pad written for antibiotics and antispasmatic drugs and other prescriptions that I can never remember. It was maybe three or four different prescriptions and I just denied them all and left and said, well, I've got to figure this thing out. And that was about 10 years ago. And so once I knew the conventional medicine wasn't going to help me, I, I had to figure out well, what the heck else is out there. You know, I didn't know that the term would be functional. I didn't care what the term was or, you know, what letters after the name that people had. I just cared, okay, who has answers? So just started doing the food as medicine thing. Went on a paleo template, got maybe 80% better, realized that wasn't good enough, started getting into functional medicine. I honestly don't know what the – how how I ended up from, from there to there. I just – I was in the trenches and then you come across stuff, right, when you're, when you're desperate and you're looking for answers. And so then I found out, hey, there could be some stuff going on in my gut. I had a buddy of mine suggest I had parasites, so I ran a stool test, confirmed I did have parasites. I had Giardia and Cryptosporidium which are two waterborne parasites. I also had an H. pylori infection, massive candida overgrowth. My gut was super inflamed. My gut was super leaky. So I had to go and approach these things using herbs. We know the conventional treatment 
for H. pylori is what's called triple therapy or a quadruple therapy, which is three or four antibiotics at the same time. has an abysmal success rate, by the way. I didn't want to do that, so I did herbs instead. Luckily, cleared out all the bugs. And now I'm way better. I'm better than I've ever been. Now, I'm not done. I'm not out of the woods. I don't think we're ever out of the woods. The modern world is so toxic and stressful. We just have to always be working on ourselves, in my opinion. But I'll tell you, if I knew that I would end up where I am today, I, I wouldn't have believed it just because I always kind of joke about – it's not really a joke. It's not funny, but it, this was my realities. When I was in college, I would go into a new hall or a new room, and I have to figure out where's the bathroom in this building You know, because I may have to go run and poop. And that was probably the Giardia or the crypto. I mean all these parasites and pathogens can cause loose stool. It could cause constipation. A lot of people end up constipated with gut bugs, but in my case, it was the other. And now I'm good. I mean it's great to be able to sit somewhere and be able to know, hey, I can hang out at this place for a few hours and not have to think about pooping. That's a great feeling, and that's priceless. People don't understand. Mm-hmm. And you know, the other thing is um, did you kind of do – a history or did you really consider about did you think a lot about where these things came from after you found them have you thought a lot about that and kind of where we're picking these up in our environment i did i thought somewhat i thought some of it was a result of swimming in barton springs i used to live in austin texas for a couple years and it's a spring it's a natural spring Uh, i grew up swimming and being out on the water with my dad, going fishing, riding boats, riding jet skis, etc. I mean, I was in the lake or the river or a creek, a stream. I mean, I was an outdoor kid. I was, you know, not literally, but I was locked outside. Go play. I mean, I'm very fortunate that I was outside as much as I as I was as a kid. Now kids are so deficient in nature. You've got people writing books on that now. They call it nature deficit disorder. Luckily, the nature is so good for your health, but it has the downside that running around barefoot and swimming in lakes and creeks exposes you to these pathogens, which is where most of them originate from. So cyclospora is another common parasite we see. We see dentamoeba fragilis. We see blastocystis hominis. We see the giardia, the crypto. All these guys could potentially come from water. Now, there's others in the soil. There's some that could be in the air, the water supply, even your tap water supply for not drinking a high-quality filtered water or cooking with a high-quality water. You know, think about it. What do they use to make rice? They use water. So you go to a restaurant and you get rice. Well, what kind of water do you think they use for that rice? Well, of course, it's tap water. So you could you could get something in the food very easily that's a, quote, waterborne parasite. And you're like, well, I didn't swim in a lake. Well, did you eat rice? You know, it could be something that simple. And some people like to argue we can coexist with parasites. I just don't. I see the inflammation. I see the gut barrier function. We see the nutrient and malabsorption indicators. We see the symptoms, depression, anxiety, fatigue, weight gain, etc. And so I, I don't believe that you should leave these things alone. If I find them on a test, I'm going to take care of them. You know, I bookmarked a page recently. I read a book about um, nothing to do with medicine, but I was really someone taking a motorcycle trip from uh, the U.S. down to the southern trip of um, South America. And there was a really excellent page I was going to scan and put in my program. And it really talked about um, them, you know, they had some anti-parasitic things on hand. I don't know what they all had with them on their trip. But basically, she would talk about, oh, my boyfriend was sick that night. So he went to bed and blah, blah, blah. We didn't know if we wanted to use this medication. And she talked about a friend from South America who said, um, she told her friend, I think it's gross that you 
automatically do these medications to get rid of parasites. And her friend said, I think it's gross that you don't. And so I thought that was just really interesting. That was a really interesting paragraph in the book that had nothing to do with health. Um, and it was just modern day. Uh, it was written, you know, about a trip that was taken a few years ago. I think that the tricky thing that makes this a complicated conversation is that my understanding is in the United States, we used to look at parasites more readily, right? Like maybe even as late as the 80s. Um, but now it's almost like unless you went to a foreign country or something like that, it's like it's not even a concern. Um, I wonder what the shift was. What do you think? Oh, I think it's just the pharmaceutical industry is not making as much money on anti-parasitic drugs. And so we know just by talking with many friends of mine that are doctors that are in the conventional field and we're trained conventionally as medical doctors, you know, they'll tell you straight up that they'll have a webinar or a seminar sponsored by Pfizer. So if there's not a pharmaceutical interest in it, why pursue that? Why go down the rabbit hole? Why spend time educating or re-educating or giving the latest data on parasite statistics if you're only going to make 10 bucks on a bottle of, you know, metronidazole or mimbidazole or some of these other uh, commonly prescribed drugs? That's probably number one. You just have to follow the money trail. Probably other causes, but that's my first guess. Yeah. And we want to think that we're clean and we're not affected by this, but we're just as affected. I always think like, okay, so we eat sushi and now we're into like raw things. I mean, we're really, I, nowadays, after you look at so many gut tests, you're like, yeah, I don't think I'm comfortable with, with, uh, <laughs> with the claims that your fish is clean enough to eat raw. I'm, I'm just not sure. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with you. Yeah. The raw fish, you know, people are doing raw butter. They're doing raw milk. They're doing raw cheeses. Everything's going raw. Like, you know, pasteurization is the devil now. So there are some enzymes and things that do get killed in pasteurization. So I'm not saying you should eat pasteurized. I'm not saying you shouldn't eat unpasteurized. I'm just saying when you're doing a workup on somebody, you've got to consider what all's coming down the hatch. And so for me, this is why a lot of times we pull dairy out of the picture, at least temporarily, just to help roll in or roll things out. Now, butter generally is okay, but a lot of the cheeses and yogurts and stuff like that, generally we pull those out, at least for period of time until we can get things settled down. I always say it's kind of like Russian roulette because for multiple reasons, unless you're milking the cow, you don't know what the scoop is. And the second thing is that I think some of my clients get lost in is whenever I reintroduce dairy, I ask them to start with grass fed versus just regular. Um, and people definitely see the difference. I saw the difference in my own health. I was getting more itchy from regular dairy. Um, and I've got this other IBD client. He says, you know, he gets gas when it's regular dairy, but he does just fine with grass fed cheese. But uh -huh. recently I had a, and you know, and that's really fun to be able to pin point that because you've been really strategic about everything um, to the point where you're like, yeah, I see the difference. This is cool. Um, and so you're able to see kind of how you feel differently. But I recently had a case I was telling you about where, um, you know, I say when you reintroduce this, start with grass fed um, butter and cheese. So mom took that and went and bought grass-fed raw ch cheese and her son like started having blood in the stool right away and I'm like okay not raw just grass-fed um you know this is kind of a kind of a red flag when this happens maybe that's not going to work very well for you right what happened after that did you figure out it was that or yeah so we stopped the cheese and the blood stopped and then we turned up our gut improvement or anti-inflammatory um options and you know said please don't do that um if right. you're going to reintroduce do grass-fed butter if anything but this mom is really into her her dairy she was a raw milk person beforehand and so it's kind of hard when you see all these things um but just like you had just said once you start seeing the kind of mess that lies beneath you're like yep not worth the effort um on this so i i agree tastes um, good that's yeah. about 
It's about as far as I'll go with it. I'm not putting it in at this time with myself. I, I've worked so hard that to me it's kind of a, a step back. Right. Yeah. Right before air, we were also talking about the prevalence. So just talking about through history in the U.S., especially and talking about overall parasites, I think um, something I became kind of passionate about this year because my daughter experienced this was pinworms. And this is really kind of frustrating to me that this isn't part, you know, now because uh, we don't have a choice, like lice prevention and lice discussion has become really con- like that's becoming kind of normal to talk about in schools. Kids, you know, we're having we're being really preventative. The be- the schools that are the most preventative do the best job. But why don't we talk about pinworms a little bit? Because they're so common. You know, when my when I found these on my child, um, who by the way had those same behavioral issues you mentioned ish- earlier, um, and I knew there was a problem. But sometimes it's hard to get the people around you to believe the things that you know are true. Um, I was surprised and appalled that on the CDC's website it says, and I paraphrase directly from them, that if you have children, you work with children or you work in an institutionalized setting, your prevalence rate or, uh, yeah, your prevalence of a potential pinworm infection is 50%. Now, how come no one wants to talk about that? Wow. Yeah, I mean, parasites are huge. My daughter had them. I would suspect a lot of kids have them. And that's the itchy bum, too. You know, kids may complain that their butt itches, you know, could be could be pinworms. Very, very common. Mm-hmm. Why don't they want to talk about it? I've got no clue. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a good answer for that one. I would just say that I do see it often, and it's more difficult than you think to get rid of it. You yeah. got to really work hard on the bed sheets and everything. I mean, those little eggs can get under fingernails and all sorts of little sneaky places. Right. So let's talk about common parasites seen in the United States and beyond and how you figure that out because it's not um, witch doctor stuff. Um, We have some easy to use parasite testing options. So tell us about things that you see um, and the method of how that is tested for. Yeah, so we use a DNA connections or uh, DNA connections is Lyme. I had DNA in my brain. DNA GI map panel uh, from a company called Diagnostic Solutions. That's what I use currently. So if you're listening in, in the future, maybe I switched. But for now, that's been the best one. I've run over 2,000 of these tests. And I mentioned some of the parasites already. The Crypto, Sporidium, Giardia, Blasto, Dentamoeba fragilis, Cyclospora. Those are kind of the big ones that we see. There's others on there too. But those are kind of the top go-to ones that we see. Bacterial pathogens, we test for those as well. Gut inflammation, we look at that. H. pylori is huge. My daughter just showed up with H. pylori on her stool test, so got to get rid of it. And what was the other part of the question? The one part was how do we find them? What are the common ones? Was there another part to that question? Oh, yeah. No, it was just like is it a stool test? Because I think sometimes people don't realize that a a stool test is how we're most commonly testing for it. Yep. Yeah, and this is an at-home stool test, which is great because – we can work around the world with people, and I've had clients as far as South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and we can send the test kits over there and get that back to the states. And so there's no doctor required, and you don't have to go beg a doctor who doesn't want to explore new things with you. You know, so many people are like, oh, my doctor doesn't want to run this. It's like, okay, well, that's what we're here for. We're not doctors, but we're able to get this testing done that 
you know, frankly, doctors just don't have a clue about. They're using an outdated technology. Sometimes it's human microscopy or sometimes it's antigen-based testing, which is far more inaccurate. So I need to bring up an important point here, which is that if you go to your kid's doc and they refer you to a gastro doc or for adults listening as well, if you go to your gastro doc, they're going to run a very outdated and highly inaccurate test on you. They may run some breath testing, they may do stool, they may do urine, but their technology is not the same as what we're using. We're on the bleeding edge here. And so it may be another 10 or 20 years before we see these type of technologies being used widespread. So long story short, if you get an all clear message from your GI doc, but you still have symptoms, then you need to pursue further because I doubt that test was accurate and you probably have infections because I see it every single day. I see all these workups people have had done and it got missed. And then we run our testing, and guess what? Now we find XYZ bug, and then we know why this person has suffered for so long. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I saw a famous functional medicine practitioner not too many years ago, and he did some of this poor testing. And so one of the things he told me was that I could do nothing. I'm like, wow, I cannot believe that is what you were telling me. But it was really important. It was an important experience because it allowed me to not do the same thing. And so I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I think that's something that is accidentally missed we automatically think that all these tests are going to be the same but you it takes practice and um, research to know which ones are the best and you know when your provider is in a place where he's only got access to one that is a bit of a um, that's a bit of a, uh, a inhibition or I mean a bit of a barrier I guess so that's a really really good point and you know I don't know about you but I find some of um, Something that's a little tricky, you know, I like to do stool testing on someone who's got a digestive issue, on someone who's had problems for more than 10 years. Um, I always tell them, like, hey, you're going to want to do this. Anyone who's got an autoimmune factor um, or an autoimmune issue. But I find that people who don't necessarily have a diagnosed condition are some of the worst ones, right? So you might not really believe that you've got much for digestive issues, but let's say you're pretty fatigued and you just don't really feel great at all. You feel just kind of ugh not great, but you don't have all these diagnoses that some people do. Those tests still look like crap, right? Wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would say my, my, I guess, qualifications for running a stool test is if you poop, and that should be everyone because <laughs> you're a human. So, uh, you know, because I've seen now people may say, well, I'm biased because I'm working with people that are not well, right? These people are not the 1% top of health. They feel amazing. Everything's perfect. Some of those people still choose to work with me and you'd be surprised some of these top athletes that I've worked with that they still have infections and then we clear those and they get even better performance, even better energy, better sleep, et cetera. So people may say I'm biased in the sense that the people that come to me have symptoms. Therefore, there may be more higher prevalence of infection, but look at your average person. I mean, the obesity rate is astronomical. We've got more obese people than overweight people now. So overweight, you know, that's when your BMI is up some. And then you've got obese, which is your BMI is really high, you know, 40, 50, 60, 100 pounds overweight. There's more obese than there are overweight people. If you look at some of the CDC's statistics they just put out this year on obesity, I mean, it's absolutely insane. So those people probably have just as many gut bugs, causing just as much inflammation, causing just as many autoimmune conditions as the people who have done all the low-hanging fruit. They've dialed in the diet. They've listened to the podcast. They've done the supplements, et cetera, and then they still have problems. Those people are probably not that much different when you get to the piece of paper. Yeah, that is very true. Um, so let's talk about – go back to 
um, not just your story, but overall, if someone comes in and they have parasites, right, which is very likely, what are some of the few points that you have them consider when trying to make sure that they're not going to get reinfected? Because that's a thing as well. So you're having them looking at water, maybe I heard you say before, or you're having them look at pets. Could you walk us through how you want them to look at their environment to make sure that we're not um, just reinfecting? Well, they're partners, the first place to start. Now, we can't say with 100% certainty that all partners are going to reinfect their partner, but I would say based on the thousands of tests I've run, I would say about 90% of the time we're seeing that the partner, whether this is just kissing or sharing cups or spoons, you know, sharing a fork, this could even be with your children. A lot of times the parents are actually the vector. Uh, passing the bug on to the children. Hey, honey, try this bite of this. Here's my fork. And then you pass the H. pylori through saliva and you infect your children. And so we have to test the parents if we're working with kids. If we're testing the wife or the mom, then we also test the husband or the dad. And a lot of times the guys, I don't know what their problem is, but they're reluctant and they're skeptics and they're stubborn and they don't want to do it. And I say, look, don't be selfish. If you don't care about yourself, that's fine. But if you're going to spend this money, make sure you test yourself because you're going to reinfect your wife and then your wife spent all this time and money and suffering and now she can't get better because you've reinfected her. And this happens the other way too, but I would just say vast majority of time it's the guys that are stubborn. But I did have one one male client who – he was in his 50s. We cleared out the H. pylori. His issue was chronic pain in his abdominal area, which, duh, that's H. pylori a lot of times, especially if you're hungry, and that pain worsens when you're hungry. A lot of times that's H. pylori. And we cleared him out. He felt great. And then three months later, he emailed me, Evan, I have gone backwards. I was like, did you ever test your wife? Nope, she doesn't want to get tested. I'm like, well, I don't know what to say. I said, we can do another round of antimicrobials. But you're going to waste your money. Maybe you can feel great again for three months, which is fine, and then you can go backwards, whatever you want to do. Finally, guess what? She bites the bullet. She gets her stool test. There it is. Boom. H. pylori. And so now what did we do? We did a protocol for both of them, and then now he's better, and I haven't heard from him until our next appointment, which is in like a year because he's doing so good now. And you know, his wife was the roadblock. So sometimes you've got to look outside of yourself. Sometimes you're not the problem anymore, and you've got to look elsewhere. Yeah, I'm sure some people will like bookmark this spot on the podcast and then send it the little snippet to their husband probably. So you're looking at partner. Where else do you look at when you want to make sure someone's not getting reinfected? The pinworm issue, as I mentioned earlier, you've got to change sheets. You've got to wash stuff in hot water. You've got to clean doorknobs. You've got to clean door handles. You've got to go nuts. There's a product called Benefect, I believe is the name. It's like a natural clinically proven blend. I want to say it's thyme oil, maybe clove. Either way, they have wipes, Benefect wipes and the Benefect's liquid. It kills like 99% of all sorts of different bad bacteria versus using like Lysol or some other conventional chemical, right? You got all these people being diagnosed with COPD now that have never smoked and it's because they're using all these terrible uh, personal care products and terrible inhalants like your Let's say your Lysol, your 409, your Fantastic, all those name brand cleaners, those are just toxic. So if you're, quote, detoxing or cleaning your house, make sure you're using legit, clean, safe, healthy products. You can look up the Environmental Working Group and research your products to make sure they're clean. So some of it is like a house detox in that sense of sheets and, and door handles and doorknobs. You mentioned the pets, so that's a good one too because a lot of times – Let's say you have a dog with a Giardia infection, very common, right, because the dog runs outside. Giardia is a common parasite found in creeks and streams. The dog could go outside and 
drink up a puddle, gets giardia, gets infected. That could be passed via saliva. Your kid goes and grabs the disgustingly slobbery uh, dog toy and throws it, and then the kid picks his nose or eats his boogers or you know puts his fingers in his mouth, and guess what? Now the kid's got giardia. So the pets could be another potential vector, and the good news is you can get rid of parasites in pets the same way you can with adults and children, which is by using natural antiparasitic herbs. So could be the pet and water. So got to make sure you've got good, clean water for cooking, drinking, bathing. I have a whole house filter. I also have a reverse osmosis system, and I have a Berkey, which is a stainless steel countertop system. It works great. So water, you'll spend a little money to have good quality water. But if you're just depending on something like your fridge filter or a Brita, those are garbage. Throw them away. It's not even worth it. You know, Brita maybe – or the Pure, the P-U-R brand that you attach to your sink, maybe reduces a little bit of lead, maybe a little bit of chlorine or chloramine. That's about it. In terms of cyst, giardia, cryptosporidium, et cetera, you need a really, really high-quality filter. You're not going to be able to filter out gasoline and all these other crazy stuff. You know, Pharmaceutical drugs, for example, we've got antidepressant drugs. We've got cardiac drugs. We've got anti-anxiety, benzodiazepine medications in the water supply. So I could go on an hour rant if you wanted me to about why you have to filter your drinking and cooking water. I don't even travel without bringing my water with me. You know, I'll just bring a big stainless steel container of filtered water. And if I'm out and about really far away from the house, of course I can buy something, but if I'm just traveling locally, I've always got my own water. I avoid tap water like it's the plague. Now, that sounds like snobby, right? So people are like, oh my God, this guy, he's a water Nazi. Look, I'm super grateful that we have potable water, something that we can turn a faucet on and drink it and it looks relatively clean and relatively clear. I'm super grateful. Don't get me wrong. My gratitude level is 1,000 to be able to have good-looking, clean water. However, we know based on the EPA studies of thousands of different cities and tap water supplies, the water is contaminated. So you know, in the third world and second world, developing world, there's, the own, there's issues over there with water. We've got issues over here with water too. It just manifests differently. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I'm with you because water was a big piece of my own health journey. I kind of, um, the wrong kind of water sent me over the edge actually. And we don't, what kind of water? Well, I was at a swimming pool too many days in a row. And so the chlorine uh. really just taxed me, um, to the max. And I had many clues before that. And then it all really, when you really assemble your own puzzle, you're like, yep, I just don't do well with chlorine at all. That's a lot. That's a lot with kids too. A lot of kids with these behavioral issues, you know, they have like swimming club memberships and especially when the weather's bad, these kids are going to indoor pools and those places look at, look at lifeguards who work at indoor pools. Most of them are overweight due to the chlorine blocking the iodine receptor site, therefore causing hypothyroidism. And we can measure this via blood. Look at the lifeguards working at a saltwater pool. In comparison, you're going to see less obesity. Now, of course, that is a very big statement for just one potential bad guy. Of course, they could have a bad diet and infections and all sorts of stuff. But the chlorine aspect is huge. And so uh, what we do for kids, swimming is good for you, right? It's fun. It's relaxing. It's great. But what we do is we just give some kids some of the micronized chlorella, just a few drops before and after swimming, and that mitigates the risk. Yeah. Along that same line, if we think about
about it, you know, I think we just really discount water because we discount it, right? We take it for granted, right? Because we have clean water, thank God. But um, because we take it for granted, we don't think about what a big piece of our lives it is. And so we're bathing in it, we're drinking it, it's the majority of our drinking, I hope. <laughs> so um, it is a big, big piece. Um, and it's hard to find like the perfect, um, I've had people I've tried to send them to get water tested, because they, it is really nice to understand where am I getting this problem, because I don't want to keep having that problem. But sometimes it's like, well, let's just get some good filters in place and, and other things. So those are good points. So just to recap, it was evaluating the people you live with. And you know, there are studies that show that we share a microbiome with the people that we live with, right? One study in particular looked at um, the microbiome of all the people in the house, whether they were intimate or not intimate, and the one person was on antibiotics. And for the six weeks, four to six weeks, I don't remember how long the study was following, everyone in the house's microbiome was impacted. Um, so partners, Whoa. big deal. Yeah, yeah. So, and then we've got um, pets. We, we care about that. You know, the other thing is we always, we always treat our pets better than ourselves sometimes. I think a lot of people do give their pets antiparasitics, um, but I I have seen or heard some stories from other mentors talking about someone that did not get over H. pylori, treat the dog. Now we're over H. pylori. Ah, wow. So here's the funny thing, right? Like it's so common and normal when you go into the vet when your dog's sick. What kind of food are they eating? When's the last time you went to your doctor and they said, okay, what's your diet? Never. Sure. That's the first question a vet asks most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot we could discuss about veterinary. The difference between veterinary and human medicine. I should almost have a veterinarian come on. Actually, you should. Uh, yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. Um, so we talked water, partners, pets, all the people we're living with. And did I miss one? I feel like I missed one, Nevin. Mm, I mean, soil. Like going barefoot in the soil. You know, mm-hmm. totally beneficial and healthful. But there's a lot of bugs, a lot of lot of bacteria in the soil. Some good guys, some bad guys. And so if your kid's like eating dirt, obviously you could get exposed to some pathogens that way too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another thing to mention about the chlorine, you were talking about iodine, but just from a, like a big picture standpoint, chlorine is bleach. So it's antimicrobial. So if we're automatically kind of drinking a, like a low grade antimicrobial all the time, it's going to impact our microbiome. And we know that our microbiome can impact things like ghrelin and leptin, the hunger and satiety hormones, right? And so all of those can have a big picture impact. And I think the challenge is, is that especially in research is that sometimes we look at everything like they're the same but we know each person is individual and they all have their own immune system status they all have their own personal genetics and so some of us are affected more by certain things than other people are right you yeah you make a really good point about the chlorine you know i was talking just about bathing in chlorine which could be a bad thing for your your skin microbiome because it's sort of like an a topical antimicrobial right you're killing off these good bacteria on your skin and so you could have issues just from that perspective but also the drinking and the drinking of the chlorine, also fluoride is commonly added. Like in Kentucky where I am, fluoride is added to the water supply, not good for thyroid, mm-hmm. and causes dental fluorosis. It can cause issues with the teeth as well. And so you've got to make sure you filter out chlorine for bathing as well as drinking in your home. And there's a study on this that the Canadians have done. If you just type in trihalomethanes cancer, you could read a Canadian study that estimates 30% of all cancers are caused from trihalomethane exposure via a hot shower. And the hotter the shower you take, the more trihalomethanes, which are the byproducts of the disinfectant chemicals used to kill, hopefully, pathogens like parasites in the tap water supply, those byproducts of disinfecting remain in the water. And when you heat that up, those disinfectant products become airborne. You breathe it into your lungs, negatively affecting your lung tissue, 
as well as creating cancer risk. And so this is a big deal. This is why everyone should have a shower filter. And if you don't, now it's time to get one. Yeah, big deal. I haven't read that study. I'll go look for it. So let's wrap by talking about kind of your personal story and maybe some other things that you've seen in clients from dealing with parasites because we were talking about the mental, emotional component and depression. So tell us, you know, give us a little bit of a timeline on how that just reversed. Like how did you see that start to reverse as you treated yourself or maybe in some of your clients? Yeah, so for me, it was a gradual thing. Like the food is medicine thing got me maybe 80% better, right? So the the gradual reduction of the other 20% of issues took longer, but the initial 80%, just with diet alone, was was very awesome. Um, for for most clients, you know, I tell people five to 10% improvement each month, and a lot of times we beat that. So I did a podcast that should be coming out real soon. I've already had it recorded with a woman named Rebecca, and we speak about her daughter who was nine years old and who had psoriasis, full body rashes all over and was going to be in a wedding and the little girl was too embarrassed when she went to go try on dresses she was just humiliated she felt so ugly and she didn't want to be part of the wedding anymore you know so just really affected her her social confidence and mom gave me a pretty strict timeline she's like look the the wedding is this day I want her to be better by then I'm like oh my god you're putting me under the gun here so we worked as fast as we could. We investigated her gut. We did find several infections in the gut, and we kind of talk about the lab results on the podcast. I don't have her file up right now, so I can't remember exactly what was going on, but it was a handful of bad guys, and we cleared up the diet. We cleared up the gut, and within six weeks to maybe eight weeks on the long end, she was like 95% better with her skin, and the mom was like, you couldn't even tell anything was ever wrong with the skin, and that just – I mean, that almost brought tears to my eyes when I got to hear the progress. You know, it was just so exciting. She said she went to the wedding. She was in the dress. She looked so beautiful. We've got all these great professional pictures now where she's just so happy. It's like at the end of the day, that's why we do this. We're not just doing it for the piece of paper. Obviously, it's great to see the piece of paper, right? The bad guy goes away. But really, we're wanting to see that we're putting these kids back in society so that they can be better teachers so they can be better students so that we can be better parents we can be a better wife a better husband a better partner you know a better granddaughter or, or a, a better grandfather you know we want to be good productive members of society we look at the healthcare cost that we have it's astronomical it's so many missed days of work so many medical appointments, so much radiation, so much antibiotics. I mean, we're just, we're on this carousel right now and we want to get off of it. And that's kind of my goal at the end of the day is to get people off the carousel. You know, it's kind of a bittersweet moment when you get a client to the point where you go through the list of symptoms to kind of check in and the list is gone. And you're like, well, I guess, I guess you don't need me anymore. Talk to you next year for a follow-up. You know, like that's almost kind of sad. It's like, man, we actually, when you move the needle so much, it gets so fun and it's addicting as a practitioner that once you resolve everything, it's like, oh man, I wanted you to have something else to complain about so we can fix it, you know? But, uh, but Hey, look, you want to teach people how to fish, right? You want to get them off that carousel ride. Yeah. Actually, it's funny that you say that because I'll always do an initial intake to see if we're a good fit. And I always say to people, like, I like when you have a lot of problems because that's a lot of you know, it's so fun to fix everything. You know, it's fun for us to have so many things to fix. And I get excited when I see H. pylori pop up on a stool test. I'm like, yes, H. pylori. Because <laughs> now I know, hey, look, Miss Jane, your fatigue, 
your abdominal pain, your bloating, your heartburn, your digestive complaints, your constipation alternating with diarrhea, your skin issues, your depression, anxiety. Did I mention those already? Look, Mm -hmm. I have an answer for almost all of these now for potentially where this could be coming from. So to be able to see the answer and have the golden key, it's just – it's a very great empowering feeling, which is what just makes this so fun. Yeah, it is really fun. And I'm glad we had the conversation because you said something that I thought was kind of important. People come to me a lot of times for food. And that's what really got me started on the addiction was like massively helping people not do just a generic thing, but kind of a customized protocol that really helps them. But then sometimes you can get to a a plateau to a certain point because you do have to address these other infections or pathogens or other stressors, you know, and that's why this is a less stressed life, right? So you come looking for diet. um, And so for me, sometimes it's talking them, talking to them. Sometimes it's the first time that they've heard that, that gosh, there could be another piece dear. Like there's a reason that you're not getting more tolerance to foods. You should not be on this restricted diet forever to the point of you feel like you can't be normal, right? Um, Amen. You should be able to, you should be able to enjoy things, make it feel normal, et cetera. And so that's where it, it really went down this path. And then once you see all these stool tests, you're like, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Everyone does need this. But sometimes it's a matter of let's have the like, let me help you understand why you need this, even if you don't have digestive symptoms, because if you are fatigued and have these other things, you don't want to be having a problem, an underlying problem that even though you're so much better with food causes you to relapse later because you didn't address all the pieces. And so that's kind of a big, um, it's a big kind of a soapbox (laughs) that I have kind of routinely. So I'm glad we're having this conversation publicly because I often have it behind the phone or behind the computer. Like, Hey, I don't want you to have a relapse. I want you to feel your best ongoing. So you don't need me. Um, or so you don't need really anyone. So you feel like you own this. You are your best self. Yeah, if people are going for like chocolate to make themselves feel better, like in the middle of the day, if you're tired and you feel like crap and you go sneak and eat a piece of dark chocolate or maybe it's regular garbage milk chocolate that's got high fructose corn syrup, which is coming from genetically modified corn, which has glyphosate, which is damaging your mitochondria and causing further fatigue. Maybe you're doing that. Maybe not. Either way, you probably have issues with your endorphins. And so this is a common whole nother can of worms that I won't open at the end, but I'm kind of opening. So I'll just finish my thought, which is a lot of people lack the endorphins. So this includes your norepinephrine, your epinephrine, your whole family of catecholamines, which also includes dopamine. And we try to self-treat and not address the root cause. So we may go for a piece of dark chocolate to comfort or numb us or to get us through the day, give us a boost of energy. Vegans and vegetarians, I'm specifically calling you out because you're not getting methionine and a lot of the complete aminos you need from avoiding animal proteins. So when you avoid animal proteins, I just did a whole podcast on this that'll be up on my show about metabolism. And this is why we see so many tired and overweight vegetarians is because they're There's a process in the body called the carnitine shuttle, which takes free-form fatty acids and turns them through a a dial, what you could call it. You've got the citric acid cycle and the Krebs cycle in the body. This is a way you manufacture energy. If you're lacking in dietary carnitine, methionine, other amino acids Mm -hmm. because you don't have animal protein in the picture – you're going to be more tired, and that's why you talk to a vegetarian, a vegan, ask them what one of their favorite foods are. Guess what they're going to tell you? They're going to tell you it's dark chocolate, and that's because they're trying to self-treat. And so the food is medicine stuff is great. It's like, oh, it's organic. It's stone ground. It's you know, hand-picked by a monk in the Himalayan mountains chocolate. It's like, okay, still chocolate, still trying to self-treat. You're not addressing the root cause, which is you don't have enough endorphins. 
and we got to fix that. So when you talk with these clients, you know, part of it is is the compliance piece that becomes difficult if they don't have enough reasons. That's why, you know, we run the testing to show, hey, here's where the issue is coming from. And then you fix it. And then when you can fix the brain chemistry, sometimes you have to start with the brain because you got to get their brain working enough so that they can even stick to your gut protocol, right? Mm -hmm. So this is when kind of the finesse of the practitioner comes in. This is where it becomes more of an art form rather than like a protocol template is getting the person to the point that they can do what you're telling them to do. Yeah. So that's a that's a whole maybe part two can be that conversation. But. Yeah, that's a big piece of kind of how I refine things. I I get I tell people it's not that you weren't doing some of the right things. It's that a lot of people don't finish or don't follow through or don't completely finish something. But on the note of carnitine shuttle, I mean, I think some of my favorite micronutrient tests are. I feel very strongly that vegetarians and vegans can benefit so much from looking at genetics and micronutrients because you deserve real time tests. You deserve some real time data on what's going on so that way you can make adjustments as needed so you can actually feel your best and those are some of the more challenging micronutrient deficiencies and profiles um, for some of the reasons you mentioned right and so I think it's just really important for people to kind of have that check and be able to say oh okay well here's xyz reason well why maybe I could adjust either via supplement via food whatever so it's empowering for sure yeah and, and I'm not uh, I'm not saying this without data I'm saying this with data so People that are mad at me, I've got the piece of paper to prove. So if you want to have a chat about it, let's have a chat. I'll show you on a piece of paper what happens to vegetarians and vegans. It's not the meat that's the problem. It's your digestive system that's the problem. It's because you feel bad when you eat meat doesn't mean you blame the grass-fed steak. It's likely an issue where age, stress, infection, and inflammation has lowered your ability to secrete stomach acid. When you have reduced stomach acid, for example, H. pylori, it damages your parietal cells. These are the cells in your stomach that secrete HCL, this hydrochloric acid that's necessary not only to break down your food and turn proteins into free-form amino acids, which then manufacture hormones and neurotransmitters. That's extremely important, but also the piece that stomach acid neutralizes pathogens. Mm -hmm. So if you have H. pylori, you've lowered your stomach acid. Now you're more susceptible. You and your friend could go eat the same sushi. You get infected. They don't because you had H. pylori lowering stomach acid. Therefore, you didn't give your food the acid bath that it was supposed to have in your tummy. And this food and these bad guys on the food can continue on and make a home in your small intestine or wherever else. And that's why they stay. It's because they didn't get killed. So with supplemental acid and enzymes and fixing the infections at the root cause here, you can prevent yourself. So this is why you know people will try to ask, well, why am I this way and why is this person not? We both had the same food or we had the same water. We both went to Mexico. He got sick. I didn't. Why? Well, that's part of the answer. That's exactly the answer. I love it. And in fact, it's almost I this is this should give you uh, some reason. I'm almost surprised when people come back with if they do a kind of a self test or like a free self test of stomach acid when they come back sh like seeming like they have enough stomach acid. I'm shocked just because pretty much everyone I work with would have low stomach acid. So that helps you understand how big of a problem it is. It is. You also mentioned age, stress, infection, and inflammation. Those it was almost like a uh, a pillar for each one of the worst micronutrient tests I see. So that was really really funny. Um. Well, hey, Evan, I hope that this was really uh, inspiring for people listening today. I hope that they, they took away several things, and I hope it got them thinking about how um, infections aren't just this mythical far-off thing, that they are living with us right where we are, and uh, controlling them can help us live our best life. I never went out of the U.S., and I had all these bugs, so 
just because you lived in South Dakota for 20 years or you lived in upstate New York and you had this pristine farm that you grew up on and you had well water that was tested and there's no chemicals in it, trust me, your well could be contaminated. That was 20 years ago when you tested it or whatever, and you could still have bugs. If you get pineapple and you live in New York and you're eating pineapple in February that came from Costa Rica, you could have bugs. The food supply is international. Go look at your organic blueberries in your fridge. Guess where those came from? Probably Chile or some other South American country if you're eating berries in the fall because they're not growing right now. There's there's like last week there was snow on the ground where I live here in Kentucky. So that that's why bugs are there. It's because the food's international now, even if we aren't. Yeah. So it's okay to think that this is if this is not abnormal it is normal so well thanks so much for sharing i see it every day yeah thanks so much for sharing your story evan on um, gut bugs depression and some other things uh it was enlightening it was a fun conversation and we'll talk to you soon thanks so much for having me one of the best gifts you could give us at the less stressed life is your feedback we are paid in podcast reviews if you enjoyed this or any other episode please Leave us a review in the iTunes store or from your podcast app. Just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 